Welcome back to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Whether you work for a team on the field, the ice, a court track, or a diamond, our association gives you an opportunity to grow. You are listening to episode number eight, part two, how the sports world is adjusting to the new normal with your host, Lester Munson, a member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Alongside Lester is Greg Clifton, another member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Sit back and enjoy this episode of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Hello and welcome to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. My name is Lester Munson. I am your host. I will be talking with Greg Clifton, one of the nation's great sports lawyers, about the effects of the pandemic on sports and the sports industry. This is the second of a series of three podcasts, and we will be taking a look at all of the current issues that have resulted from the pandemic, from the cancellations and the postponements uh, that all of us know about. What are the effects? What are the difficulties? What is going to happen to some of our major sports? Greg is a lawyer who has been on both sides of the industry. He has represented management, the owners, and he has represented players uh, as an agent. He is the only lawyer who has won a baseball salary arbitration on both sides, the owner's side and the player's side. Also, way back, he played a little basketball for Harvard. So he is a totally qualified lawyer to talk about these issues. Let's start today, Greg, with taking a look at what President Trump and the government are doing. President Trump wants the sports teams to get back in business. He's become a kind of a cheerleader for ending the shutdown, for advancing things forward. And uh, we have, at the same time, the stimulus uh, rescue packages, trillions of dollars being tossed around. What possibilities are there for the sports industry in all of this? Well, that's a great point, Lester, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. Um, You know, President Trump last weekend had the opportunity uh, to have a conference call with all the major uh, sports leaders uh, from the commissioner's perspective. And I think you're 100% right. There is a desire from President Trump to see how quickly we can resume professional and collegiate sports, make sure collegiate sports begin again in the fall, simply because he's looking for some diversion to try and help people through this. And I think that'll certainly send a signal that we're trying to put the COVID-19 behind us. Unfortunately, and I think the challenge is, and I think all the leagues recognize this, especially the wonderful commissioners that each league has, they don't want to have any speed bumps or any false starts. So there is a concern, I think, on a broad base that we are better off waiting a little bit longer before we try to resume uh, so we don't run into any of these speed bumps and have to take a step backward. Uh, obviously, the, the direction and some of these decisions are going to be led by people like Dr. Fauci and the other health experts uh, who are trying to decide when it will be safe. Obviously, the professional sports, when you think about hockey or basketball or football, you're requiring very close contact, which is clearly in contradiction with the directions we're being given as a society to keep our distance from one another. Uh, so I think that's an initial problem. Uh, but the funding aspect of it, you are 100% right, Lester. There's been literally uh, trillions of dollars are trying to be introduced into the economy to try and stimulate the economy and try and offset some of the 
uh, the tragic economic impact that smaller businesses in particular have had. And there's also been an effort by the sports leagues, and I know the number of sports owners in those leagues, to try and help during this difficult time by creating funds and distributions for day of game workers and other part-time employees uh, to try and assist them uh, while there's no games being played to provide some level of income and some stability for them as we all try and adjust to this uh, you know, coronavirus, and hopefully we're going to see an end to it shortly. Uh, the Tokyo Olympics have been postponed until a year from July, and that is going to cost the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee at least $200 million in money they were expecting from the Olympics if they had gone ahead this year. Uh, that's going to put a lot of athletes who are training for the Olympics in jeopardy. Uh, there are 2,000 athletes ordinarily who are dependent on some of that money in the form of monthly stipends uh, for their training. What about the idea of the Olympic Committee going to the stimulus people and asking them for some of the money? $200 million in these stimulus packages is not much money. It's a rounding error, really, or a pocket change. Is that something that could work? You know, that's another interesting point, Lester. I really haven't heard that uh, suggested or recommended at this juncture. I think the focus, for the most part, because once the Olympics were postponed, uh, till July of 2021. It was almost like the focus, unfortunately, for all of those athletes who probably spent the better part of their lives training for this tremendous opportunity to represent our country. It appears as though the focus is shifted to a certain degree and almost put the Olympics on the back burner. And I think what's going to happen is we are going to see that being revisited as the focus shifts a little bit and we get our economy moving again, uh, whether that's in a month or two months or three months. I'm optimistic that some of the points you're mentioning in terms of uh, a relatively small amount of money, it's hard to say $200 million is a small amount of money, but <laughs> relatively speaking, when you're talking about trillions, it is. Uh, and I'm hoping that as this gets behind us to a certain degree, we'll have an opportunity to address some of these needs for some of these athletes who are going to be representing our nation in the summer of 2021. Unfortunately, I think from, from a, a public relations perspective, Probably right now would not be the greatest time to try and talk about introducing or taking a portion of the stimulus package to go toward athletes for the Olympics. But I do believe, and especially with President Trump's love of athletics, that we will see our government revisit this in some way to, to ensure that these wonderful athletes are going to get the support they need and have an opportunity to continue to prepare for the Olympics, which are now a little about a year and a half away instead of six months away. Yes, it's made a big difference for these athletes. And by the time the Olympics begin in 2021, uh, we will have lost Shimon Biles, the star of the last Olympics, the greatest gymnast of all time. And it'll be interesting to see who will emerge as a star of those games in 2021. Um, let's turn to Major League Baseball, Greg. It is seemingly unthinkable, but the season seems to be in jeopardy. We've had a couple of ideas that are worth considering. One is to play the season out in Arizona, there in Phoenix, where you are. The other idea is to split up the teams and have a league in Florida and a league in Arizona. Is this something that can work, and will the players agree to it? Your, your last point is the most important point. 
I think, uh, again, with the great leadership of Commissioner Manfred and the other people who are running Major League Baseball, obviously their goal uh, and recognizing the wonderful healing power of baseball and the love of baseball in our country, as we remember from the, the tragedy of 9-11 and how the uh, Major League Baseball helped with that healing process initially. Uh, while this is certainly different than that tragedy, I think there's a, a perception of the same goal here. And I think baseball has been trying to stimulate ideas and discussions to try and see what would be potentially plausible. Uh, you know, the Arizona idea was an interesting one, but I think it is fraught with some difficulties because the concept of having, you know, literally, uh, you know, 750 to 1,000 players and personnel from the teams essentially quarantined in one city, uh, even though we have a number of facilities and obviously hotel accommodations, is probably not realistic. Uh, the most latest proposal, or at least the rumored proposal, would be to have uh, essentially eliminate the American League National League distinction for 2020, but literally divide the 15 teams that are playing in Arizona and the 15 teams that are training uh, in Florida and create essentially two different leagues and have three divisions in each league. So you might have you know, the Dodgers competing against the Indians on a regular basis as if they were in the same league this year since both of them train here in Arizona, and you might have the Yankees and the Mets competing in a similar fashion because they both train down in Florida. So I think this is, again, another attempt by baseball to try and get back on the field. They understand the limitations uh, from a health perspective, and that obviously is the most important thing. But I think they're talking about these different ideas because, again, they have to be approved by the Players Association, and the players have to sign off it on, on it as well. So I think it'll be interesting to see. And I think we're going to see more ideas come out as well. Again, with one goal and one goal in mind, how quickly can we get back on the field, but at the same time ensure the safety of all the athletes? And the one thing I'll add, Lester, I think for the most part, all these discussions that are going on right now involve fanless games. So these players will be playing in empty stadiums, uh, whether they be in Florida or Arizona, uh, from what I'm being told. What would the minimum number of games be? for baseball to start a season? How many games do they need to complete a season? And is there a point of no return when they would say, we just don't have enough time, we're going to have to cancel the season? Uh, something that would have been unthinkable think, a few weeks ago, but is now clearly within the realm of possibility. It certainly is in the, within the realm of possibility. I do believe, though, Lester, as we're seeing reports today, about some of this plateauing uh, of, of some of these incidents of this virus and the uptick is leveling out a little bit. Unfortunately, we still have the tragic number of deaths escalating, but the new cases seem to be plateauing. And I think that's one of the, the things that's giving some optimism here uh, for all sports, frankly. When it comes to the number of games with baseball, I don't think there's a magic number. Uh, and as we both know, this sport has had work stoppages before from a labor relations perspective. And I think there can be some creativity with how we would play these games. I think if you if you really thought of like a, a mid-July as a, as a drop-off date, because again, I could certainly see the season being July, August, September, maybe even going into October uh, easily if you used a Florida and Arizona basis. So you wouldn't have games in Minnesota, perhaps, and, and other cold weather cities. But if you had four months or a little bit more than four months, you could probably have a 100-game season very easily. You could fit that in, obviously recognize the importance of protecting the players from a safety perspective. Uh, but I do think, uh, you know, if you look at it, and I have not heard a drop-dead date, but from my experience, 
I certainly think if you got something going by July on a creative basis, you could certainly have a fulfilling season that the fans would be satisfied and certainly the players would be uh, as they are so anxious to get back on the field and compete. And we know that they would need three weeks of training before they began playing games. What about the temperature, particularly in Arizona, Greg? If, if it's 110 degrees, is that a situation where we want players out there playing even two games? Or one of our sons went to Arizona State. I know the summer is very difficult there. Can baseball survive in those temperatures? I'm going to put my uh, Phoenix Chamber of Commerce hat on and I'm going to say, Lester, you have to remember it's a dry heat. And I say that tongue in cheek because it is hot. And uh, and I know you and I both remember uh, years back when the AAA team for the San Francisco Giants, the Phoenix Firebirds, were here for years and years. And I do think, you know, while it's still hot and all kidding aside, it is a dry heat for the most part. Uh, you certainly would probably not be able to have day games. And, and I say that, you know, half smiling because I guess you could. Uh, and if they're going to be fanless games, maybe you have some creativity with games that take place you know, 9 a.m. in the morning, but certainly by the evening, it cools off. And I do say that again, tongue in cheek into the 90s. Uh, but again, I do think it would be a concern and an issue. But we have rookie league games out here in the summer. And, you know, certainly from a hydration point of view and with misters and stuff, it could probably be doable. Uh, but again, I don't think it would be optimum. And obviously, if some of the games are played in the, the home stadium for the Arizona Diamondbacks, that is a domed facility. So certainly that would help as well. But again, that would certainly be one of the challenges uh, when you're thinking about a, a two or three month period where you're looking at 110 to 115 degree temperatures. The other possibility, and then we'll move on to uh, the NBA. The other possibility was Scott Boris' suggestion that Major League Baseball use the 11 domed stadiums as venues for completing the season. There, the problem with that, of course, is they're spread all over. Um, but is that within the realm of possibility? You, you just answered the question with your question, Lester, which is exactly right. The problem, which I think, you know, Scott is such a creative guy and has great ideas. That's one that's fraught with one issue, and that issue is travel. Uh, even if you're using the dome stadiums, which might allow for better weather conditions and an extension of the season further into the fall and perhaps even, even into early winter, if we thought about November or December, um, but the challenge with that, until we get clearance for travel, I think one of the goals for Major League Baseball with these quote-unquote linked ideas of whether they be in Arizona or in Arizona and Florida combination was the fact that it would essentially eliminate or drastically reduce the need for travel and allow the players to, I'll use the word and I'm over-exaggerating perhaps, in a quarantine type status where you would limit interaction and you keep the players together. Uh, once you start going through airports and traveling, I think the problem is until this is really behind us, Major League Baseball is going to shy away from that because of the risk of exposure for any of the players and any of the personnel traveling with the teams. The um, It's going to be uh, interesting to see what happens, and it seems to change almost day by day as we listen to the various statements from the White House and from other political leaders and from Dr. Fauci and some of the experts. Um, let's turn to the NBA. And here, Greg, we open up the possibility of what we're now calling e-sports. Commissioner Silver and the Players Association are thinking about staging a game of horse 
a game all of us have played at one time or another. Is this something that might work? We've had uh, uh, NASCAR already try it. What do you see as the prognosis there? Now, that's another interesting idea, and it gets back to the point I made earlier, which I really commend the leagues for. They're trying to be as creative as possible. They're trying to maintain connections with their fans and make sure they're continuing to showcase their star athletes from each league. Uh, you know, baseball, just touching on that, I was understand is going to be starting a, a uh, essentially a, an interactive game forum uh, starting this weekend where they're going to be having their star athletes who participate in these video games, essentially having a chance to do a virtual competition. You know, the NBA, it would not be virtual. It would be more direct uh, observation of these players playing horse, which I think would be really kind of entertaining in a lot of ways. And I think the fans might really enjoy it uh, in terms of seeing these star players that they haven't been able to see for a while. Uh, obviously, it's not the same as resuming games. Now, with the, the rumor with the NBA, in addition to that horse competition, they've also had some of these virtual competitions as well. Uh, I was uh, laughing. I was driving home last evening, and the, the Phoenix Suns broadcast station was actually broadcasting with a play-by-play commentator and a color, co- color commentator commenting on a video game uh, live on the radio. So it was really kind of uh, interesting to think that that's the effort that these stations and teams and leagues are going to to try and make sure they maintain contact with their fans. You know, from a live perspective, you know, March 11th was the day when uh, Commissioner Silver announced the initial suspension of play for what he hoped was going to be 30 days. We're now past that or getting very close to that 30 day estimate and certainly no end in sight to the suspension of activity. The one difference with basketball, of course, because it's an arena sport, there's really no limitation as to when they could resume the season or certainly maybe end the season and begin with a playoff situation. Similarly to baseball, I think you'd have to give the players a little bit of time to get back in shape. But I think the NBA has a little bit more flexibility with dates, uh, I guess, based upon arena availability. And the one rumor that I keep hearing all the time is perhaps some interactive uh, competition with the players and the teams taking place in Las Vegas. And again, those are only rumors, but certainly they're fairly strong rumors. And we'll have to watch that over the next week to 10 days. And again, Commissioner Silver, one of the other great sports leaders, is very sensitive and mindful of what's going on health-wise and obviously wants to protect all of his athletes. So he's not going to do anything too quickly, as none of the other commissioners will. But one of the rumors is certainly to house all the players in Vegas and have a summer league-type forum, which they've used Las Vegas for previously, except of a summer league, it would be the NBA players, whether it's a playoff format or the end of the season. But Las Vegas has been a tested location where they've had these summer league games before. So I think that's why they're thinking of resuming uh, some activity there if possible. The uh, Silver certainly came into the job, didn't he? Uh, Not expecting to be dealing with Donald Sterling, driving him out of the league, and now with a pandemic. Uh, but he has distinguished himself as a commissioner in the face of a couple of the very unexpected crises. He's doing a great job, and he was the first one to recognize the pandemic and start canceling things. Yeah, he was the first one, but I have to commend the the, uh, leader of the Ivy League, Robin Harris. She was a little bit even, I think, ahead of him, and she recognized uh, with some of her medical experts that she relied upon in canceling the Ivy League tournament earlier in that same week. So I think, you know, again, he's been a tremendous leader uh, and he's really not afraid to make a decision and get in front of some of these things. And, and like I said, he's he has done an excellent job. And again, his goal 
while at the same time recognizing the financial impact of cancellation of games. Uh, he really put his players and their organizations and the fans ahead of everyone to make sure that the decision he made was going to make sure he guaranteed as much the safety of those people as possible. The, now, some of these situations get into insurance problems. Uh, Wimbledon has been canceled, and the reports are that the Wimbledon folks had pandemic insurance. How is all that going to work? You know, it's amazing when you, when you think about it, and what's amazing about that story, Lester, is that from what I understand, and again, depending on who you talk to, there's either been a $2 million premium paid every year for at least seven, but I heard late last night it might have been as many as for 17 years. And I, and I smile when I say this because the person was obviously incredibly uh, bright and, and thinking toward the future. Uh, but can you imagine probably about the fifth or sixth year when someone comes forward and says, yeah, I want to get that pandemic insurance again. It's only a $2 million premium. I'm sure from the, the wonderful people who run the tennis club uh, where Wimbledon is housed, or probably trying to say to themselves at some point, we're, we're spending a lot of money here. Uh, but the beauty of it from their perspective, and for un- unfortunately their ability to have to use it now, you know, the rumor is, and I think it's been fairly well documented, that the policy is for $141 million. So even after the premiums, depending upon who you talk to, they're either going to have somewhere between $107 million or $120 million, depending on how many years they paid the premium for, and again, they anticipate usually with Wimbledon, Wimbledon about a $300 million revenue a source for the event. So, you know, if they can pick up $120 million, give or take, from insurance, that will certainly help to offset the financial impact from the cancellation of Wimbledon. But I think the crucial aspect of this is unlike the force majeure clause, which we talked about in our last podcast, and the impact of those on some of these decisions and potential cancellations, this is one of those where by having the pandemic insurance, it actually might have led to the cancellation as opposed to the postponement or the delay of the event, because by canceling the event because of the literally because of the pandemic, uh, for the most part, I would argue it probably guaranteed that insurance payment, whereas they would have postponed it till October or November, they probably would not have had any insurance offset whatsoever. So again, this is a situation where the Insurance might have played into the hands of a cancellation as opposed to a postponement, unfortunately. But I commend the people uh, you know, who run that Wimbledon event and the individual people who suggested this pandemic insurance for a number of years. Uh, they certainly had the foresight to be prepared in case it ever happened. It is amazing foresight. And you wonder if the people at the U.S. Open uh, made the same decision or if they looked at it uh, and rejected the idea. That venue is now a 350-bed hospital for COVID-19 patients. So it's not going to have any tennis uh, anytime soon. One final topic, Greg. The, we talked last time a little bit about the revenue uh, effect on the NCAA. Now, however, people are actually talking about the fact that there may not be a college football season. What is the NCAA doing and what can we expect from it uh, in the face of the pandemic? I I think, Lester, when it comes to the potential cancellation, and I stress that word as opposed to delay, the potential cancellation of the college football season would be devastating. Um, And it would would certainly be devastating to the NCAA, the entity itself. It would really have a drastic impact 
to the university and the university's athletic budgets. As we know, they've canceled spring sports this year, but for the most part, spring sports are not the revenue generating sports that the individual university and college athletic departments rely upon to fund some of these non-revenue sports. Obviously, football and basketball, for the most part, are your major revenue generators for most colleges and universities. With the cancellation of the NCAA tournament, the NCAA missed out on drastic revenue. And as people know, that revenue is distributed back to the individual conferences and to the schools. So again, reports that I've indicated from fairly accurate sources are that that revenue stream was cut from about $600 million to about $225 million. So we've always seen it, already seen a drastic reduction in the potential distribution of funds to the colleges and universities. And if those colleges and universities are now going to run into the problem of losing revenue streams from football this fall, it'll really have a, a, an incredible impact. And I think universities are already trying to prepare for it by looking at their budgets and trying to figure out where there could be cost savings. I heard one athletic director comment the other day that, you know, as he's looking at his budget, he's looking at a lot more bus rides for his athletes than plane rides. And, uh, you know, some of these things, as simple as that, when you carry them out over a number of the team sports that some of these universities have, which could be 18, 20, 22, 25 sports, the multiples of these cost savings are going to be really become critical. And we've also seen some schools announce uh, what they're calling voluntary reductions in pay for coaches. I know Louisville just announced a 10% uh, cut in coaching salaries. And you know, Iowa State, their coaches have essentially voluntarily stepped forward. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, but again, without football this fall, it would be it would really be catastrophic. But what I'm hoping for is that a worst case scenario, we would see a delay. And I know I've heard some schools and athletic directors speak about being able to still have a full season, just pushing some of these bowl games back until later January and early February uh, when we still have a football mindset since the Super Bowl is until February. So, again, we're in a, a really a challenging area because it's a, a really a case of first impression. Uh, we have never been through something like this before. And as you said earlier, and you were right on point, Lester, we're in a situation where we're seeing changes and modifications and reactions to news on a daily basis. And whether that's the professional sport leaders or the conference leaders in college sports or the college presidents and the athletic directors, they are really monitoring this situation closely and are going to really have to make some decisions uh, from an economic perspective as well as from a health perspective. Thank you, Greg. Uh, that's a wrap for this, the second installment of a three-part podcast by the Sports Lawyers Association. Thank you, Greg, for your insights and your analysis. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back to you next week. Thanks for tuning in today. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts.